At this time, please turn in your Bible or in one of the pew Bibles below the seats to the Gospel of Luke. This morning's text, uh, as we continue in our sermon series to the Luke's Gospel, is Luke 3, 21 and 22. Luke 3, 21 and 22. So please turn there now in the Pew Bible. You can find this passage on page 858. Now, if you are observant and you're quick with numbers, if you can count to two, you're probably surprised by what I just said. We're going to be covering two verses in this morning's sermon. Last week, 20 verses. This morning, two verses. And that might surprise you. How are we ever going to make our way through the Gospel of Luke if we're going two verses at a time sometimes? Uh, Well, my reasoning for this is that these two verses record a significant event, Jesus' baptism. As we will see, Jesus' baptism is a a significant event not only in his life and ministry, but it's significant for all who hear and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, there are glorious truths for us to ponder and apply relating to Jesus' baptism. Personally, there there is a truth that I want to put before you a glorious reality found in Jesus' baptism that has warmed my heart throughout this week. We met as elders yesterday for our our long elder meeting, and my mind, I, I tried to focus, and I think I was helpful in the meeting, but it often gravitated towards, you can even ask a couple of the elders, because I kept on bringing this truth up, and, and I'm excited to put it before you this morning relating to Jesus' baptism. And so would all of those who are able now stand again for the reading of God's holy word. For the sake of, of context, I will, be begin, I will begin reading in verse 15 so that we have more of the picture and we remember some of the background for verses 21 and 22. Beginning in verse 15 of Luke's gospel, chapter 3. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. This is God's word for God's people. May we hear it, believe it, and obey it. You may be seated, and let's pray. Lord, I do believe that we in colder climates, places like Wisconsin, have the ability to connect with with a glorious truth that maybe those in warmer places struggle at least a little bit to connect with, And that is that you provide our warmth. Even in the middle of the the cold, even in the middle of winter, when snow is on the ground, when ice is on our windows, when it's harder to get places, we have you, the God who warms our hearts. You are awesome, God. 
And for your people, you have not just warmed our hearts, you have brought them to life so that we see you rightly, we see ourselves rightly. We understand why you made us for your glory so that we would enjoy you. And I pray that this morning you would warm our hearts with the truths that can be found and applied in this passage. Truths that reveal your greatness, your uniqueness to your people. That you are so good and loving and gracious and kind. God, help us this morning. Help all who hear your word go forth this morning to receive it rightly. To be amazed afresh by your greatness, your glory, your goodness. Warm our hearts. The God of life who gives life. Please, we pray. God, you are indeed awesome. Every single song that is true and right that we sing to you should be sung over and over and will be sung forever and ever. Our hearts will be glad in you, not just now, not just momentarily, but forever. And we look forward to that day. And yet, as we wait for that day to come, when our Savior comes for us, when he appears again, help us to fight the fight of faith, to press on, to not give up, to Continue in the life that you have called us to live in whatever station or work that you have given to us, whether it's in parenting or in our careers, whether it's in, as a student in college or in elementary school, as, as a widow or as newly married, as single or as someone who is pursuing marriage. Lord, help us all to pursue you first and foremost to not waste the day and help us to not waste this day. Lord, we give you praise for all of your blessings today. We praise you for the furnaces in our houses and apartments that have kept us warm, for cars, for warm jackets and hot chocolate and coffee. We praise you for the way that you have kept us physically warm. And again, we praise you for the way that you have brought us to new life in Christ. You are the God who sustains and blesses his people. May we praise you for all of your blessings today. God, we pray also for our country, for our leaders, for our president, as there are more rumors of war, as there are more threats, as, as those throughout the world seek to go their own way and do what is wrong and evil and hurtful and destructive, murder people. Lord, we pray that you would give wisdom to this country's leaders. We pray for wisdom for our president, that as decisions are made, they would be made for the benefit and blessing of others. We pray, Lord, that not only the president, but senators and representatives, politicians who speak on our behalf, would do what is right and just before you. We pray for the leaders of other countries, that you would bring humility, that you would bring peace. We pray, Father, that you would be glorified throughout the world. We pray also for the church in this country. Lord, what freedoms you have given to us, unique freedoms, and yet so often we don't use them. We shrink back. We can be ashamed of the gospel, even though we do not face the same threat of persecution and hardship that our brothers and sisters throughout this world face. Help us to be bold, and not just the American church, but this church to be winsome and compassionate and loving and clear and articulate the glorious good news of the gospel of your son, that he is the only way by which men and women can be saved, 
that people must turn from their sin and trust in him. Please, Father, strengthen the American church and use us to be a beacon of light in this world. We also pray for the persecuted church, those brothers and sisters who do not have the same freedoms, who, who every time they open their mouth, every time they gather to worship like we're doing this morning, there is the threat of persecution, of imprisonment, and even death. Lord, we are one in Christ, and help us to proclaim the glorious gospel, whether it's costly to us or not. Lord, we also pray for those who are sick, those among us, our brothers and sisters in Christ, who are battling physical ailments, who are pressing on through spiritual and mental difficulties. Lord, be with them, strengthen them by your word and the promises that can be found, the good news that can be found in this passage. Lord, we also pray for those who do not know Christ, who the Spirit has not warmed yet, who is not brought to life, those who are still dead in their sins. I pray, Father, for them that you would do what you have done in us. Give them eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to believe this glorious good news. Lord, we pray all of these things for your glory and our joy. May we receive your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When you read the Bible and you read through the Gospels, you, you see that Jesus did and said many, many interesting things. Some of them were absolutely amazing. They revealed his divinity, like when Jesus pronounced people's sins to be forgiven. This amazed many. So many of the crowds who heard these things were amazed that Jesus had forgiven someone's sins. Only God can do that. And at the same time, these amazing pronouncements from Jesus that somebody's sins were forgiven angered others like the Pharisees and Sadducees because only God can tell someone that their sins are forgiven. It was also amazing when Jesus turned water into wine, when he healed the sick, when he gave sight to the blind. It was amazing when Jesus gave people who were unable to walk, either from birth or because they had an accident or something happened to them later in life. He gave these people the ability to walk, though they had not been able to walk. And most amazing of all was when Jesus raised people like Lazarus and a little girl from the dead, bringing them back to life. They had been dead and they, they came back to life because of Jesus. It was amazing. Other interesting things that Jesus did and said seemed more odd or confusing, especially to those who first witnessed or heard them. Like when Jesus cast demons from a man and into a herd of pigs, and those pigs proceeded to jump off a cliff and drown. It freaked people out. The people there that witnessed that, the, the, those who owned those pigs, asked Jesus to leave. They didn't know what to do with Jesus. The man who, who had been possessed by the demons was pretty excited about the endeavor that Jesus had just went about and accomplished, and yet others were confused by him. Then there are Jesus' words in John 3 that one must be born again by the Holy Spirit before they can see and then enter into the kingdom of God. These words were odd and confusing to Nicodemus, a religious man who first heard them, and they remain confusing and odd to many who have heard them since. And there are Jesus' words three chapters later when he said, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Now, we're, as a church, familiar with these words. 
We have a theology. We have an understanding of what Jesus was saying here. But these words were so odd and confusing that in response to hearing them, many who had been following Jesus, people who are described as disciples, not the 12, but other disciples, proceeded to turn back and no longer follow Jesus because he said these things. They found them to be odd and confusing. And then there is the time recorded in John 9 when Jesus spit on the ground to make mud, then put that mud on a blind man's eyes. He then told the man to wash the mud off in a nearby pool, and the result was that the man who had been blind from birth miraculously gained his sight. It's odd and confusing because the other times that Jesus heals a blind person, he doesn't do that. And yet here's this, this blind man. Jesus could have just said, you're, you're healed. You're healed. And he doesn't do that in this case. And to be Captain Obvious here, it was odd and confusing because Jesus put mud made from his own spit on a man's face. That's odd. A little confusing with some examples of amazing, odd, and confusing things that Jesus did and said in mind, we turn our attention back to this morning's passage, to Jesus' baptism. Though it may not be one of the first things that comes to mind when you think of something interesting that Jesus did, as we will see, at least as I hope I put before you if I do my job as a preacher, Jesus' baptism was indeed amazing. It was amazing. And though we may not think of Jesus' baptism as odd or confusing, it was at least initially odd and confusing to John the Baptist. Matthew tells us this in his account of Jesus' baptism in Matthew 3, 13 through 15. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. Here, John the Baptist tried to stop Jesus from being baptized. He told Jesus that if one of them was going to be baptized by the other, then it was Jesus who should be baptizing John, not John baptizing Jesus. To John, baptizing Jesus didn't seem right. It was odd. It was confusing. It would be something like a professional mechanic asking one of us to fix their car. You being at home, maybe with the garage door open, and, and somebody pulling up and saying, hey, I'm a mechanic, can you fix my car? That, that's, that's odd, that's interesting. Or a Michelin award-winning chef asking one of us to cook them a five-star meal. I like to cook. Uh, every other time it works out okay. I, I, I don't follow recipes, I just add things and, it, and, and I, I use like the same three spices every time. And sometimes it works. It would be odd if, if, a, if a Michelin award-winning chef said, hey, cook me a five-star meal. It would be odd if, if a six foot 11, we'll, we'll call him an NBA MVP and Milwaukee Buck, if Giannis Antetokounmpo asked one of us to dunk for him. You'd say, what? That's, that's strange. Why? Because John has become more and more aware of who Jesus is. He was starting to put the pieces together about Jesus. He was beginning to think that Jesus could be the very one that he was sent by God to prepare the way for. That Jesus could be the one that John was speaking about in Luke 3, 16 and 17, when in response to crowds who said, Hey, John, are you the Christ? John said, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, 
the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. You see, if Jesus was the one whose sandals John wasn't worthy to untie, the, the dirtiest part of, of Jesus' attire, John says, I'm not even worthy to untie this one who is coming sandal. If Jesus was the one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire, a baptism that would far exceed John's baptism, if Jesus is the one who would wield the winnowing fork, if Jesus is the one who would rescue you and me and every sinner who repents and turns to him, and the one who would destroy every sinner who rejects him, and as John would come to know, he is that one, then, then how could John, a holy but sinful and far inferior man, baptize Jesus? That's the tension with John in this passage. It would be like a mechanic bringing their car to me to fix it. And if you know my, my mechanic abilities, you laugh. Uh, it takes me hours to do the simplest of jobs. It, it would be like a world-renowned chef asking me to cook them a five-star meal. It would be like Giannis asking me to dunk. I can't. I couldn't even do it in high school. Only with a tennis ball. You lower that to nine feet and I might be able to dunk, but I'm not doing anything special. And that's why the idea of baptizing Jesus didn't seem right to John. It didn't make sense. It was confusing. And so why would Jesus require John to baptize him? In Matthew 3.15, Jesus said that John was to baptize him to fulfill all righteousness. And it was this answer that caused John to reluctantly consent to baptizing Jesus. It's an interesting statement from Jesus. His baptism was to fulfill all righteousness. R.C. Sproul provides this helpful explanation of what this is all about. He writes, Had he merely paid for the sins that we had committed, that in itself would have only wiped the record clean and put us back in a state of neutrality. It would have done nothing to earn entrance into the kingdom of God for us. For heaven requires not only that we be removed from our sins, but also that we have a positive dimension of righteousness. What I'm saying is this. It is as important to our redemption that Jesus lived as it is that Jesus died. His atoning death had to be preceded by a life of perfect righteousness, fulfilling every command of the law. It was his meat and his drink to do the will of the Father. He said that not one jot or tittle of the law would pass away until all had been fulfilled. He set out to fulfill it. This was his mandate. It must be fulfilled, he said. John the Baptist might not understand why it was necessary for Jesus to be baptized, but Jesus knew that in order to fulfill all the requirements of the law, he had to be baptized. End quote. Matthew is the only one who tells us about John's hesitation to baptize Jesus and Jesus' response that his baptism was to fulfill all righteousness. The conversation helps explain the theological significance of Jesus' baptism. This was part of our Savior fulfilling all righteousness for us. But there's something else that at first glance makes Jesus' baptism very interesting odd, confusing. Luke 3.3 3 states that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
You see, John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus by preaching a message of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Remember, a kingdom has a king, and the king had come, and that king is Jesus. And so John was the messenger, crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. He was the one that God used to level the mountains, to prepare the way, to plow through the stony ground, to prepare hearts to receive Jesus' message. And it was those who responded to John's message by repenting of their sin and trusting in the Lord to forgive their sin that John then baptized with water. John's baptism was a public demonstration of a person's repentance. Everyone that John had baptized before this with water was someone who committed sins and lots of sins. They were people who may have committed idolatry, that is, worshiping something or someone other than the Creator. These were people who had committed adultery, lied or lusted, stolen or coveted. They were people who had sinned in anger, who had been greedy, who had gotten drunk. They were people who hated others because of the color of their skin or their background or their nationality or their gender. They hated people. And yet when they heard John's call to repent, God granted them repentance. To use Wayne Grudem's definition of repentance from last week, these people were sinners who had a heartfelt sorrow over their sin, who renounced their sin, and then made a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to the Lord. And to show this, to demonstrate this to God and to others, John baptized them with water. And this is what makes Jesus' baptism so interesting, so amazing, odd, even confusing. Jesus never sinned. He didn't need to repent of his sins. He didn't need to be forgiven. Jesus was and is sinless. He didn't need to be baptized in that sense. He's the only one who didn't need to respond to John's message. Unlike all of us, Jesus has never broken God's law. He has never rejected God's rule. He has never disobeyed God's word. Jesus has never committed idolatry or adultery. Jesus has never lied or lusted. He's never stolen or coveted. He has never been sinfully angry, greedy, drunk, or high. He has never hated another person. Jesus has done the very opposite. He has always been obedient to God. He is truly holy. He is the definition of holy. He has always kept God's law. Jesus is the perfect human, and he is God. And so why would he be baptized by John? This is what is so odd and confusing at first glance. Because when Jesus was baptized, this is why. This is the truth that warmed and refreshed my heart. And I hope it does the same for you. When Jesus was baptized, he publicly identified with us sinners. In being baptized by John, our Lord intentionally associated himself with sinners like you and like me. In this way, Jesus' baptism was this glorious announcement to sinners then and today that Jesus is not ashamed to be connected with us. That's awesome. Contemplate that. The Lord of heaven, the King of kings, is not ashamed to be connected to you. Wow. If you don't know Jesus, if you don't have a good understanding of who Jesus is, that, that won't impress you. That won't warm your heart. But if you do, if you know who Jesus is, 
if you have a taste of how great and how awesome and how glorious and how beautiful and how good he is, if you know that he is the one that all things were created through and for, if you know that you were made for him, that's awesome. He is not ashamed to be identified with you, repentant sinner. In middle school, I attended the same neighborhood school as a boy who lived just a few houses away from me. Actually, he lived across the alley, two houses down. Now, outside of school, we spent a whole lot of time together. Uh, there were a bunch of kids that were either my age or just a, a little bit younger, and we all liked to play sports. And so we played baseball in my side yard in my, my neighborhood, in my area. Uh, the, we had a side yard, and that was that. That was unheard of. Most, most of the houses on 57 Lapham, you could put your hand out and you could touch the other house or you, you, know, you, you can hear everything. And we had this side yard and it wasn't big enough really to play baseball, but we played a lot of baseball and we broke a lot of windows in that side yard. And this friend was one of those who would play with us almost every single time we played. We, we played football together in the street in front of my house with the other kids in the neighborhood. We played basketball in the alley behind our houses. I believe our parents pooled money together to buy a hoop and put it on our neighbor's garage so we could play. Sometimes this friend would eat meals with my family. He would sleep over at my house. We'd ride our bikes to the store to get a snack together. Uh, he would sometimes buy me a snack. I would buy him a snack if one of us didn't have any money left. We would go to brewer games together. We would invite each other to our birthday parties. Now, I'm not proud of this. I'm not proud of this. As I pondered this reality, it hit me just how bad of a friend I was. But at school, I, I would try to avoid this friend. I, I kept our conversations short in the hallway. If we were in a class together, I didn't sit by him. I definitely didn't sit with him at lunch. I tried not to walk home with him, even though he just lived on the other side of my block. I, 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 I didn't want... You see, people to know that we were friends. I didn't want to be identified with him. I didn't want to be associated with him. You see, he wasn't one of the cool kids, and, and I wanted to be friends with the cool kids. I wanted to be cool. I was afraid that if the cool kids knew that he was my friend, well, then they wouldn't think that I was cool, and they wouldn't want to hang out with me. At times, he was a bit strange. He didn't wear cool clothes. Back then, the cool thing to do was wear a jersey, a different jersey, every day. And so I had my jerseys. He didn't have any jerseys. He was tall and skinny, and he, he wore high waters. That wasn't cool then. But he was kind. This friend was awkward, but he was thoughtful. He was a good friend to me, but I was a terrible friend to him. I was ashamed of him. In trying to be cool, I acted like a fool. And here's the connection with Jesus. Jesus, who is infinitely greater, in a non-sacrilegious way, infinitely cooler than all of us, who is far superior than all of us, who is the King of kings, who is God come to us in human flesh. He is willing to associate himself with us, with me. He is willing to be connected to us, be identified with people like you and like me. That, my friends, is absolutely amazing. It is wonderful. If you just hear a little bit of what I'm saying and you know who Jesus is, that is awesome and glorious for your heart. It should warm your heart. 
You see, I know my sin, and, and you know your sin, and God knows your sin, and God knows my sin. He knows all of the rebellious, wicked things that I have done, and the depths of the wickedness that, that has gone on in my heart. He, he knows the, the wicked and evil things that I have said about him and other people. He knows the things that I have thought that are terribly wicked. And he knows the same about you. And yet he identifies himself with you. He comes to you. He takes on human flesh. And he lives in this fallen, messed up world full of people like you and I who have rebelled against him. And he identifies with us. Wow those who have sinned. There's no one like him. He is perfect. There's no one like him. It's not even close. He is the crown of heaven, the greatest man, the holiest ever. He is awesome. And he identifies with us. We have, at least some of us, and I think in one sense or another, we've all committed idolatry. Some have committed adultery. Some have lied and lusted, stolen or coveted. We have sinned in anger. We have been greedy. Some of us have gotten drunk or high. We've hated other people. We've been haters of God. We have broken God's law, rebelled against God's rule. We have rejected and ignored God. In that sense, he should never want to identify with us, never be connected with us. And yet, he is. He's willing. Jesus' baptism was a public declaration that Jesus is not ashamed of all who repent of their sins and by grace go to Jesus through faith. Jesus identifies with all who turn from their sin and trust in him. Sinner, do you wonder if Jesus will really receive you? Ponder the depths of your wickedness. I remember in my conversion being hit with the reality of my sin. And the reality of the greatness and glory and the beauty and the love of God in Jesus Christ. And it was a wonderful mix, a wonderful combination. Sinner, do you wonder if Jesus will receive you? Do you doubt Jesus' willingness to be associated with you? Do you question if Jesus will be ashamed of you? Even Christian, do you, do you question if Jesus is ashamed of you to call you one of his own? Well, in his baptism, Jesus showed that he will receive sinners that he is willing to be associated with us, that he is not ashamed to call us his friends. You want him. You need him. And he desires you. How amazing, how wonderful this is to hear, to know, to believe. Ponder it. That despite your sin, all of it, Jesus will receive you. He is willing to associate with you, with me. He is not ashamed of you. You can go to Jesus. The church in his baptism, Jesus publicly identified with us. He said, I'm with you. I'm not ashamed of you. I'm connected to you. You can come to me. And in our baptism, we publicly identify with him. This is why in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
Jesus, the one who has all authority, commanded his disciples to make disciples. And those who become disciples are to do what? Be baptized. This pattern is found throughout the book of Acts. The gospel was preached, and after someone repented and trusted in Christ alone, after they turned from their sin and turned to Jesus, they were to be baptized. Why? Was it just so that there would be another ritual added? Just something to do, something to hold on to? Something to impress people? No. This is the first public way that God has designed for his people to identify with him. You trust in Jesus? You believe in Jesus? Publicly declare it. Not by putting it on Facebook. You can do that. It's great. Not by writing a letter to everybody. You can do that as well. Not by praying a prayer. Some people have done that. But by being baptized. He identified with us in his baptism and we identify with him in our baptism. It pictures our union with Christ. It's the first visible, official part of the discipleship process. Now again, we know, we believe that water baptism does not make someone a Christian. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings new life. He is the one who changes hard, dead hearts. It is God who grants repentance from sin and saving faith in Jesus Christ. But that doesn't make baptism insignificant or unimportant. Jesus has given us the way that we are to show our allegiance to him, the way to demonstrate our commitment to him, the way to publicly identify with him, and that is in our baptism. What a blessing. When he was baptized, he said, I'm not ashamed to be associated with you. I identify with you. You, you can be my friend. And what do we do when we're baptized? We say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm with Jesus. I'm connected to him because he connected himself to me. How glorious, how wonderful. Whether you were baptized five years ago or 10 years ago, or maybe you've held out and you haven't been baptized because of pride and you don't want to get up in front of people and publicly declare your allegiance to Jesus. That's just silly, right? Think about it. Whether you did it then, you're going to do it soon, or in a few years, that's what's going on, among other thing, things in water baptism. You are identifying with Jesus. There's something else important for us to see in this passage. When Jesus was baptized, the Trinity was put on display for us. Though the word Trinity is famously not found in the Bible, the word Trinity describes what the Bible teaches us about God. It summarizes the doctrine of God in this way in Scripture. Now, it can be difficult to understand, really to wrap our minds around the Bible's teaching on the triunity of God because there is no one and nothing like the Trinity. I love those truths. Now, some of us, you know, in this Enlightenment, post-Enlightenment age, you know, we want to figure everything out. And then we come to God and the Trinity. Like, What? There's no one like God. And this is one of the ways that no one is like God. He is Trinity. You are one. God is one in three persons. At some point, every analogy for the Trinity breaks down. And if we use it and we say, here's how you understand the Trinity. With water and ice and steam, if you press that too far, you end up in a heresy. We can't even come up with an analogy to capture the Trinity. Every human example falls short. But we can understand the Trinity, and we must believe it, for it is an essential truth about God. It is not some secondary doctrine and optional belief in Christianity. To deny the Trinity is to deny the God of the Bible who reveals himself in the Scriptures as Trinity. 
The early church knew this, which is why the, the three great historic creeds, creeds that we affirm as evangelical Protestant Christians, the Apostles, the Nicene, and, and the Athanasian, are all structured around the truth that God is one in three persons. All these heresies were popping up, and what did most of them have to do with something related to the Trinity? And so the church put forth these, these creeds, these confessions, to say this is the God of the Bible. He is one in three. Now we could, now we really can't because of time, go through all of these creeds and go through all of the references that stand behind the creeds. We don't have the time. Sometimes we, we recite these creeds together in our church corporate worship. So one simple and helpful way that the doctrine of the Trinity can be summarized is with the following three statements. There is only one God. There's one God. Not three gods, one God. Second, the one true God eternally exists in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And this is where it gets hard. <laughs> one God, three persons. You and I, one person, and one person. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three persons in the one true God. Third statement, each person is fully and completely God. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit have the same attributes, the same divine nature, the same essence, and at the same time are distinct from one another. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. Sometimes, and you may have even heard me praying this way, because I get lost in prayer, and I want to say it's because I'm especially consumed in prayer, and I'm theologically not thinking through things. Uh, or maybe you've heard somebody else pray this way, or you've prayed this way. Somebody will start their prayer with, Father in heaven, thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. The Father did not die on the cross for your sins. The Son died on the cross for your sins. Now, I, I don't believe ultimately if we correct ourselves and we're willing to receive that correction. Hey, do you know that you accidentally, I think, prayed that? Uh, it, the Lord, the Lord is, is all right. He knows the intention of our heart. But it's just not true. The Father did not die on the cross for our sins. The differences between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are found in the way that they relate to one another as Trinity and in the role that each person has in accomplishing their unified purpose. Now, we can find many of these truths about the Trinity in this morning's passage. At Jesus' baptism, all three persons in the Trinity are present. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus, who is God the Son, is standing in the water. The Holy Spirit, who is God, is descending on Jesus in bodily form like a dove. And the Father, who is God, is speaking from heaven. Jesus is not speaking from heaven. The Father is not standing in the water. The Spirit is not standing in the water. We see the Trinity in real time. We get a glimpse into this theological truth. And, and again, it is not some esoteric, you know, you might say, uh, oh, there he goes again off into theological la-la land. No, theology is the study of God. I want to know God. I want to know who he is, what he's about. And he has revealed this truth about himself, and it's essential. He is Trinity. What husband would say, I don't really want to know my wife? Not a good husband. What friend would say, you can, you know, keep all your preferences and all your, the things that you like to yourself. I don't, know, I don't want to know the, the favorite flavor that you have for ice cream. 
I don't, know, I don't need to know that you love barbecue sauce and not ketchup. You're not a good friend to me if, if you bring the ketchup out at the table, all right? If you're a Christian, you want to know God. And this is essential to knowing God. He is Trinity. And yet in this passage, we don't, even, we don't just see the doctrine of the Trinity. We also get a glimpse into the unity of the Trinity, the relationship, the harmonious, beautiful relationship between the three persons in the Trinity. We were created for relationship. We were made in God's image, and God is Trinity. And so we long for relationship. God made us that way. And yes, some of us might be introverts and others extroverts, and it might come out easier with the extroverts than it is with the introverts, but we were made for relationships. Why? Because our God is a relational God. It's even who he is as Trinity. And so we long for good, healthy, beautiful relationships. And I, I'm not ashamed to admit this, that every once in a while, one of those cheesy, I, I think chick flicks is like a derogatory term, so I'm sorry. I, I, whatever's good to describe the Hallmark movie, you know, Amy will have it on. And I'll pretend like I'm not watching or listening. You know, I'm doing something else. I'm reading some, I'm reading Kelvin's Institutes or The Bondage of the Will or something, you know, super theological. And, and, uh, and, and I'll get sucked in. <laughs> and, and something will happen in, in my own heart. Uh, it's beautiful. That, that love between that bad actor who doesn't really love that other bad actor in that movie. And it just, I get a little glimpse of love, of relationship, of friendship. And it's, it's, it warms my heart. Why? Because I was made for relationship. You were made for relationship. And, and what do we see in this passage? the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Jesus is God's eternal Son. Jesus knew the, the plan of redemption. He knew what it would take to redeem fallen man. And he willingly came to fulfill all righteousness. And it pleased God the Father who sent him. The Father sent the Son to save us sinners by living a sinless life and dying a sinner's death in our place to bear the wrath that we deserved. And what did the Son do? He obeyed his Father. And God the Father, pondering all these things in heaven, looks down on his son and he's pleased with his son. His son's willingness to identify with sinners pleases him. The father loves his son. He delights in his son. Isn't that what a good, healthy father-son relationship should be like? The father delights in the son. The son obeys the father. There's no tension, there's no anger, there's, there's love. God the Father announces it from heaven, something he says throughout uh, Jesus' life. And we see in, in the transfiguration when his glory is, is revealed, the, the glory of the Son is revealed to some of his disciples. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And as evidence of the, the relational love and the beauty that's in the Trinity, the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in bodily form like a dove anointing and empowering him for his earthly ministry. Because just as the Spirit sustains and strengthens us as we trust and obey God, he did the same for Jesus, because Jesus is God and man. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit, three persons in one God. Here in this passage, we see they are united in holy love, united in the mission to save us sinners, united in glory. We Christians worship a God who does not need anything from us. And that's beautiful. That's wonderful. 
For he is a God who is love and as Trinity has always loved, who has always existed in eternal relationship with himself as Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And we get a glimpse of, of all of this, this beauty in the relationship in Jesus' baptism. And you know what it should cause us to do? Want that. And then we come to this truth. Because Jesus came, because the Father sent the Son, because the Son lived for us and died for us and was raised from the dead, and because the Spirit has come and brought us new life, God has brought us into that relationship. Relationship with God, the Trinity. I, I will close with just one more brief observation from the text. Jesus' baptism also marks the beginning of his public ministry. It was at his baptism that the Son of God stepped out from the background and into the spotlight to accomplish his Father's will. After his baptism, things would never be the same for Jesus on earth. From then on, there would be a target on his back, but the Lord Jesus came to rescue and redeem us, and he would not turn his back on us. After his baptism, the Son of God would be brought into the wilderness where he would be tempted for 40 days by the devil and he would pass every one of the devil's tests. He didn't shrink back or give in to sin, not then or ever, for he came to fulfill all righteousness. Then Jesus would preach with authority. He would heal the sick, cast out demons, and raise the dead, all of which displayed his divinity that he was God in human flesh, but the Son of God would be rejected by his very own people. People like you and me. People that he had identified with in his baptism. Instead of receiving him, they would betray him. Sinners whom he came to save. The Son of God would be arrested, beaten, and then nailed to the cross and die to make atonement for our sins. And he submitted to all of it. He did it all for our righteousness so that we who were unrighteous we who deserved God's wrath now and forever in hell would be saved by God's grace through faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Here's that mix again. We are rebels and renegades, haters of God, and yet Jesus identifies with us and saves us. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He is our righteousness. He is why God declares us righteous before himself, a holy God. And what was Jesus doing at his baptism, at this pivotal, significant moment in his life and ministry? What do we find him doing? Praying. The Son of God was always praying. We find him praying all the time. He's praying. And, and so it should not surprise us that as he begins his public ministry, the Son of God, our Redeemer and Savior, was calling out to his Father and reliant on the Spirit. A few weeks ago, I said that at times I struggle with prayer. I pray, I, I pray, I struggle, but I pray. I pray for you, I pray for me, I pray for our kids, I, I pray for the kids that the Lord will bring into this church, for my neighbors and family members. I pray for salvation, for provision, and yet it can be difficult to press on in prayer when, when you're struggling, whether it's with temptation or uh, with, with apathy, with laziness. And yet we see in our Savior this key moment in his ministry when he stepped in, steps in the spotlight, when he takes another step into and towards the cross, him praying. 
What a great reminder this is to us of the importance of prayer in the Christian life and gospel ministry. Church, we are to follow our Lord's example. We are to call out to the Father in prayer. Big moments and little moments. Yes, before dinner, it's not bad to pray. And before bed and in the morning, throughout the day, we need to be a people, a church full of prayer. Just like our Savior, our Redeemer, the one who is our righteousness. And so let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, I do pray that this wonderful reality, this truth found in, in Jesus' baptism, would make its way into our hearts more and more. I pray for the, the struggling, wayward, weak in faith Christian who might be doubting your willingness to receive them, who is wondering if they can truly be forgiven who is questioning if you, Jesus, will really be associated with them. That, that your baptism, Jesus, would give them more assurance, more encouragement, and remind them that you are willing. You will be associated. You are their friend, their savior, their righteousness. And I pray, Lord, for those in this place who are not yet trusting in Christ, who have not bowed their knees to King Jesus, that in his baptism, you would reveal to them the, the sweetness, the goodness, the beauty of Jesus. Spirit, we pray that you would move in their hearts, change them, soften them, show them the glory, the greatness, the goodness of Jesus, we pray. All of these things for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.